Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Let's transition to bullying. I guess the real tension is when it is effective. One lawyer mentioned to me that if they they see that their counterpart appears timid, uh, they may throw in an outburst. They may effectively yell at them, and that sometimes that can actually cause the lawyer to back down. If that strategy works, it's ethical? It's not unethical. I like your wording. So you're not willing, you're not saying it's something you condone, but it's not unethical. Right. It can be quite effective. Um, there, there may not be as many people watching this as old as me, but when I was a little kid, Nikita Khrushchev famously banged his shoe on the table at the UN. And he said, we will bury you. So you may study that in school. Um, and people were shocked, but it worked on some level. They thought, oh my God, there's a really irrational person at the other end of the table. And irrationality is another form of bullying, and it can be effective. And there is nothing in the ethical rules that says, thou shalt not be irrational. If I might, I want to say a few words about the old ethical rules. The modern rules of professional conduct were uh, adopted in 2000, but I was in law school just before Watergate. And the reason anyone has to take this as CLE or or in law school these days is ethics is now required post-Watergate. The idea of the ABA was those lawyers did a lot of lying and dirty tricks, with some of which were illegal, all of which were unethical, but only some of which were illegal. And we now think that lawyers will behave better if they take ethics courses. So the rules were changed and the requirements were changed, but I actually like the old rules better. That surprises me, Professor. Right. There were three kinds of rules. There were canons of ethics, and that's where your zealousness comes from. Canon 7 said in the old days, a lawyer shall zealously represent their client. So anybody who went to law school before 1975, that's how they would understand the notion of zeal. It was in the canons of professional responsibility. Then there were disciplinary rules, DRs, and those were the things that could get you into trouble. That's where if you outright lied, it would be like the violation of 4.1, You could be disciplined, you could be disbarred, you could be suspended, it didn't happen very often, but you could. And then there was a third level, those were my favorites, the ethical considerations. Nothing could happen to you, uh, but they were like the current comments. The ethical considerations were an effort to explain examples, like you're doing with me, hypotheticals, um, and to try to explain the rules. So um, I like those because the canons kind of expressed aspirational values for lawyers, but everybody acknowledged that lawyers weren't going to necessarily always reach the heights, the the aspirations. And so the DRs, the disciplinary rules in the middle, were the things for which you could get in trouble. And the ethical considerations were supposed to help you figure it all out. And I like that structure, but the ABA didn't. And uh, the American Bar Association said, after Watergate, we need some clear black letter rules. And that's why we have the model rules of professional conduct. And as you and I now know from this conversation, even those black letter rules aren't any clearer. Carrie, let's turn the corner to another tool or perhaps notorious thing that lawyers are sometimes accused of doing, which is 
threatening the other side. If you do this, I'll bear you in litigation, or you'll regret that mistake. We see it in movies. Is it actually permitted ethically? There's one kind of threat that is specifically prohibited in the ethics rules. And that is in the middle of a civil case, I can't say, Joel, I'm gonna see that you get convicted and thrown in jail for the rest of your life. I'm not allowed, it's, it's the one specific thing, I'm not allowed to threaten you with a criminal action in a civil, why? Because I'm not a prosecutor. Now, some jurisdictions, this is interesting, my old, I'm, I'm barred in three states, and so in the District of Columbia, you may also not threaten somebody with an administrative action, meaning, Joel, that was an unethical thing you did, and I'm going to take you to the bar and get you disciplined and disbarred. I can't do that. And I also can't say, I know you've been cheating on your taxes, so I'm going to call up the IRS and have you audited. That's also threatening either criminal or administrative action. And the lawyer ethical rules say that I can't threaten you with that. Now, some places have this by case law, um, so even if it's not in the rules, you're not. And the idea is, the only reason the threat is prohibited is because somebody on a policy level thinks that the control of those things that I'm threatening you with are not mine. It's the IRS or it's the state bar, and I can't threaten you with something that I can't follow through on. But threatening, you know, uh, obviously if I say I'm going to kill you, for example, uh, that could be an actionable crime, my threatening you that way. But there's nothing in the ethics rules that says I can't say that. So it may not be unethical, but it, it could be very much criminal. And, and ironically, just to let you know, you, most people know this because they studied it in law school. Tarasov case from California says if someone tells a psychiatrist or a psychologist that they're going to kill someone, that psychiatrist and psycho has a duty to report it to the police, but lawyers don't. I believe in New York, if I remember the bar exam, there's no duty, but you are permitted to tell that information. Very important point. I'm glad you said that. When I'm talking about prohibited, uh, things that are prohibited, it's a great line. All which is not prohibited is permitted, or all which is not permitted is prohibited. These are wonderful. If you imagine a Venn diagram, uh, little places, some states permit things, and some states prohibit them, and some do neither, so they leave it in a gray area. But it, your memory of the state bar is probably correct because it varies by state about whether you may disclose that someone has, is intending bad criminal activity or, or bad economic. So New Jersey next door to you in New York, New Jersey has the strongest law requiring lawyers to disclose the intent of their clients to do harm physically or to commit economic fraud. But what about threats that might be more realistic to come out of the mouth of a lawyer? I would shudder to hear a lawyer threatening to kill uh, opposing counsel, but you may imagine a case where, where a lawyer says, look, you don't want to bring this to court. I'm going to bury you. I'm going to file so many motions and I'm going to bring such power to bear that your client will be able to afford this. The, the thing that's really touchy, I teach this all the time, uh, because it might fall in the cracks of what I just told you about for individuals. This is why people that are undocumented don't come forward and complain about wage claims and things like that. Lawyers will threaten, I'm going to tell ICE, you know, about your client who's here illegally. And that can be not just for wage workers, but, you know, somebody who's got a very big business and isn't fully legal in the country. 
And that's the kind of thing that lawyers threaten. And some states now prohibit that, that you can't threaten somebody that you're going to take action about their immigration status. From the making the threat side perspective, I teach my negotiation students, um, don't make a threat that you can't actually carry through because you can get called on it. It's another example of the landmine. And that weakens your, your negotiation position. Exactly right. If you make threats all the time and you can't actually execute on them, that becomes known and that affects your reputation. Let's take the conversation into another area that you alluded to. Professor, I'd like to talk about fairness. And my inclination is there's less ethical obligation here. But let's talk through, let's talk through it. I'm thinking of an example where two lawyers are negotiating a complex deal and I know there's a secret trap. The other side doesn't see the trap. I'm happy about that, or should I be? It depends on what's behind the trapdoor. If you know it's something that's going to cause a problem later on, I would worry about it. If you're not sure what's going to happen and anything could happen, then maybe it's okay. I will just tell you, I, I've mentioned to you, I'm a mediator. I've been a mediator for 30 years after being a trial lawyer. And we use the standard of fairness in mediation. So when we're having two lawyers and two parties or lots of people in the room, as a mediator, I'm not making a decision. I'm just helping the parties negotiate. And I'll make speeches, you know, like the school marm that I am, the professor, the teacher that I am. Does this feel fair? Does this feel fair to you as the lawyers? Does this feel fair to you as the clients? And I say, we call it reality testing. How are you going to feel a week from now when this deal is over? Now, the example you described, I have a friend who went to law school at the same time as me, but at a, shall we say, different law school than I did, a school known for its law and economics approach to things. And he was the kind of lawyer who loved what you just described. When he finished a deal, he would call me up and he'd say, I want to tell you what a great negotiator I am, Carrie. I, I got this, I got that, and I got him to sign, I got the other side to sign this contract, and he has no idea what he's getting himself into, and he was proud of it. And he worked for a very major Chicago law firm, and uh, they were proud of that. So since I said before, I talked about reputations, law firms have reputations also, and some of them for being fair, and some of them for cutting really sharp deals. And let me give you a nice counterexample for fairness. There's a whole new field of law called collaborative lawyering, and those are the people in divorce who do just the opposite. Collaborative lawyers um, have signed a pledge, create a part of the profession in which they promise that they will only deal fairly in divorce. Why? Because they care about kids, and they know that those really contentious adversarial divorces will be terrible for the kids. And so about 20 years ago, a lawyer here in California, it's now spread throughout the country, started this practice of collaborative lawyering. And those lawyers say, I will only use fair and ethical and moral, whatever that means, tactics in this divorce. And we're going to try to settle it amicably. And if it's not amicably settled, we are going to get out of it as lawyers. And we'll recommend some adversarial lawyers to you if the negotiations fail. But we take a pledge here that if you care about your kids, you'll hire me and then you'll hire Joel because he's another collaborative lawyer. First of all, thank you for calling me a collaborative lawyer and an ethical lawyer. I, I like to think of myself in that way. But is this, 
under this system, is it both parties have to, to join the... Yeah, because you don't want to take a, a knife to a gunfight. You might not want the, the more s soft-hearted lawyer if your spouse has hired you know, the most evil man in town. Right. And it, started, it might start with one lawyer only, but it doesn't work really unless both sides do. And what might be interesting for our um, discussion here was the ethicality of this practice was challenged. Some lawyers, uh, in, in Colorado in particular, I know the Colorado Bar Association initially said this kind of practice was unethical because just as you say, you are removing some of the weapons that a lawyer has and a lawyer can't promise to not use that knife or gun if he's in a knife or gun fight. If you're a lawyer, you have to be able to use all of these weapons. Um, so the Colorado Bar Association said you, you can't call yourself a lawyer and not, and not come to the corral, to use your metaphor, with, with all the tools. But Colorado was an outlier. And eventually, the American Bar Association's Ethics Committee approved this practice. So it, it exists in, I wouldn't say in every state, but in most states. And it, yes, it does depend these days on both sides. But I regarded it as a very positive impact on the profession that, uh, again, clients would have to, clients make the choices, clients would have to understand what they were doing, but if their purpose was for an amicable, child-friendly divorce, they would have a market in which they could choose a different kind of lawyer who would pledge, by contract, to engage in some behaviors, fair ones and, and ethical ones, and not other ones. It does seem like a, a positive step and, and also an innovative one when it comes to branding. Of, of these individual lawyers. To any of the um, commercial lawyers listening, that two very, uh, very important law professors, Ron Gilson at uh, Columbia and Bob Manukin now at Harvard, uh, years ago, decades ago, they wrote an article using game theory to suggest that this should be done in commercial practices as well. Again, it's what we talked about earlier, reputation. That you would go to a law firm that promised fairness in the way it was behaving because it was efficient, what I, said, what I have mentioned earlier. It's efficient for lawyers to say, we're going to try to have an information exchange process that's structured and that we can trust each other and we can be fair. And the theory is the deal will go through and if it's not a good deal, we'll walk away. And, and they were proposing a different model. And again, the idea that not only individual lawyers, but law firms from an economics perspective would benefit from creating a reputation for being fair and ethical and information disclosing lawyers. I want to ask another question that I think is, is in, in the intersection of our truth-telling conversation as well as this fairness conversation. And that is when you notice that the other side is operating under a misconception. And perhaps they're doing so because they missed something or Maybe their, their lawyer just isn't quite as good at reading the language or, you know, for, for any number of reasons. And I've seen this where the other side will say something that you know is not true. Is there an obligation to correct them or can you politely change the subject or, or politely or impolitely change the subject and leave them under this false impression? I love that question. I have a, a, a video clip in my class that I show every year with just that happening. And I would say under 4.1, the rules that we were talking about earlier, if I see that you are operating under a misconception, 
and I do anything in the negotiation to continue the misconception and allow you to operate either under some false fact sense or a misunderstanding of the law, I would say I have an obligation to correct that. It's not so clear, and I'm sure lawyers don't do it all the time. We know this. They're empirical studies. We do have them. And I would say, in the example you just gave, many lawyers would not correct that misconception. Now, here's two very specific responses to that. If it's a misconception of the law, so here's the example. We're in, in the old days, we're negotiating a personal injury case, and you don't know that the law has recently changed to allow contributory negligence to no longer be a total defense, that we're in comparative negligence. But you're negotiating as if you think that contributory negligence would bar recovery. I personally think, it's, to me, it's clear in the rules, that I would have an obligation to correct that because if we don't settle, the case is going to go to court. And then I have an obligation to reveal it to the court. The court should know about it. But if the court doesn't, under rule, Model Rule of Professional Conduct 3.3, every lawyer has an obligation to correct a misunderstanding of the law as presented by the other side. Why? The reason behind it is we don't want judges to make mistakes. So if one side knows that there's some law that favors the other side, they must disclose it. And since Rule 3.3 says we know we eventually would have to disclose it to the tribunal, I read 4.1 as saying you have a duty to correct that misapprehension of law even in a negotiation. Not everyone would agree with me, but that's the way I see it. Now, facts are more complicated uh, because 3.3 does not require necessarily lawyers like, you know, the classic example is secreting a bad witness. You know, go, go take a vacation and don't be around to get subpoenaed for the trial. Lawyers do that. Do I think that's right? No. Do I think it's ethical? No. Um, but it's not as clearly prohibited as misstatements of law. And I would say in both cases, if there's a misapprehension or misconception of fact or law, I think there's a duty to correct it. Now for a quick break. Our MCLE confirmation code for this interview is 032117. Again, that's 032117. Now back to the interview. What if it's a misconception of a term of the contract that you're negotiating? If the other side says, well, I have a right to redeem, so I guess that's not an issue. I think we're good, I'm ready to sign. And you remember very clearly in section eight subclause B, it says there's no right to redeem. Is that an example where you're like, oh, look, I could close this deal for my client, save my client money, keep them a right uh, keep them from giving up an, a right they don't want to give, or I could correct it, run up another $20,000 of legal bills, and, and potentially blow the deal up. I would say many lawyers would not say anything, would, would let it go. Me? I wouldn't. In the case you gave, the real action is probably malpractice against the lawyer, if there is one, on the other side, 
who misunderstood or didn't know the law. Or didn't read it clearly. Yeah. Right. So the real claim would be against the bad lawyer, not against, you know, and again, the argument would be it's not my job to do the lawyering of the other side. So if the other lawyer has a misconception and the client doesn't like what happens, the client can sue them later. Uh, let me just give you a really great example. You can decide whether to use this or not. It's in all the case books. You might have read it yourself as a law student. Uh, the case of Story versus Tate. It's here in California a long time ago. Very bitter divorce. Fight over the value of some property. The parties have very nasty lawyers and they're nasty to each other. And they finally make an agreement. And it turns out the husband's lawyer has made a mathematical error to his benefit. And the wife's lawyer doesn't catch it and signs the agreement. And the agreement is approved. And after the agreement is approved, the husband calls the wife and does, excuse me, nanny, 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 uh, we took advantage of you. And, you know, if your lawyer had only done his job, you would have another $200,000. On the basis of that, nanny, 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 it, that's, that's called win-lose, win-win-lose, right? The guy thought he won. The wife went back to court, and in a very famous decision, the court rescinded the divorce deal and said that the husband's lawyer, who, 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 saw, who knew that he made the mathematical error and saw that the wife's lawyer didn't catch it, he had a duty to reveal that he made a mistake in his client's advantage. I love it. Lawyers who notoriously don't love math may have a duty to... Uh to acknowledge bad math. So the follow-on from that, it was, I forget how, I mean, it's in my casebook, how many years ago it was. The follow-on was the American Bar Association then issued a formal ethical opinion to make it very clear that mathematical errors, goes to your earlier question to me, mathematical errors in agreements must be corrected when discovered, even after the deal is closed. Okay, so they, they wrote the opinion to be very narrow so that it only applied to mathematical errors. And it leaves open the question that you've just put to me, suppose someone finds out about some other error, you know, mistake, uh, that's, that's a contract defense, right? The contract was made and there was a mistake. Is there any duty to go back and correct some other non-mathematical mistake? And that remains ambiguous under current law, both ethical rules and, and rescission and, well, and contract law. The Starr versus Tate case that I told you about, totally rescinding the contract was not the typical contract remedy for something like that. It would have been just to correct uh, and to have the parties go back and renegotiate. But Judge Kaus, Justice Kaus on the California was so outraged by what happened that he reformed the contract and redid the terms. So that's just an example to show you that judges that get really annoyed uh, with the behavior of lawyers can choose the remedy, and they will occasionally do that sort of thing. So you ask me what's fair? That's an example where I thought the judge ultimately did the fair thing, and it was quite unusual. You've talked about some, some aspirational fairness that you employ in your practice. This judge in a case, famous case, made, made a decision that was perhaps unexpected. What happens if there's a gray area and you don't feel comfortable with it, but hey, your client is not comfortable with you not taking advantage of it. What happens there? Those are toughies. I've been in that position many times uh, in the old, when I, when I was in full-time practice. Um, again, my answer is gonna be not surprising one. 
um, the old CYA memo, cover your ass. Dear client, you have asked me to uh, agree to this term. I have advised you that I think this is potentially a problem for potential voiding of the deal later. I will, because I'm required to adhere to, as long as it's not unethical, immoral, or uh, unlawful, I will agree to do what you'd like me to do, and I would just put that in the file, send it to my client, of course, and leave it in, and put it in the file. In law, what the client wants, agent principle law, what the client wants governs as long as it's not otherwise unlawful. And I can have a discussion with my client about my own ethical principles. And my lawyer, and my client in this case, might say, thank you, Michael Meadow. I see you're nice and fair. I'm going to take this deal and I'm never hiring you again. You know, you wimpy, you know, moralistic, fair-minded lawyer. Next time I'm going to get one of those tough guys. But at least it's all on the table and it's honest. Carrie, why don't we continue a little bit down the line of this tension between client and attorney? When should the lawyer start thinking to themselves or actually step up and say, no, I'm not going to negotiate this or I'm not going to negotiate this for you? That's a great question. So again, just to start with the law, the ethical rules tell us two important things. And this has happened to me. If you're representing somebody in litigation, you can't withdraw without the court's permission. So in the early days of my practice, I was a civil rights lawyer. I was teaching in a law school clinic. I had a client who threatened to kill us, all of us. And, uh, and I think he was pretty serious. And we were meeting with him in prison. I don't know that he had any weapons, but he had friends outside, shall we say. And in that set setting, I mean, that's an extreme. That's a client who's proposing some extreme measures like violence. And in that case, as much as we wanted to get out, we had to petition the court for permission and the court wouldn't let us out as appointed counsel. So when you're in litigation and you don't like the tactics that somebody wants to use or the substantive proposals that they're making, you have to have a discussion with your client and say, I don't want to do that for you. In a, in a commercial sense, if someone disagreed with me, my guess is they'd release me. So you'd have a discussion with the client. I'd say, I just won't do that. Uh, that's, that's beyond what I think is fair to the other side. Or you're asking me to lie, and I'm not willing to put my license on the line for that. So I think we should part ways. And a sophisticated client in a commercial or business sense probably will say, yeah, I think I better go get myself somebody else. That's passing the problem down the road. And then there'd be a release. There'd be a mutual release. And in some law firm settings, individual lawyers will withdraw and move it to another partner. So again, an illustration from my years of practice early on, I was working for a large firm that did a lot of management work, um, and I thought eventually I was going to be a labor side plaintiff's lawyer. Uh, they asked me to work on something that I thought was unfair to the workers in a corporation that the firm was representing. And I just said, could I not work on that, please? And the firm said yes. And I was told at the time, I tell my students this story many years ago. The firm said, nope, we, we appreciate your moral code, Menkel Meadows, fine. Now just don't do this too much or you ain't going to make partner here. <laughs> and so I think you can be moral and fair and ethical. And again, you have to understand the culture of where you're working. In some places you can do that. In other places, I'm now told you can't do that at all. If you refused a task uh, from your supervisor, you're, you're you know, not going to be appreciated. And uh, also, you shouldn't be refusing what your client wants if they're paying the bills. 
So, as you know, some people stopped wanting represent, to represent our president, and our ex-president in some of his litigation matters. This is a very big deal for the legal profession. Every day I read in the National Law Journal and elsewhere that another firm has dropped Trump. Are, are you thinking particularly about the, the lawsuits pertaining to claims of election fraud? Yep. And, uh, and now he's going to need a lot of lawyers because both New York State and New York City are proceeding both civilly and criminally. And it becomes a big issue. You're seeing what's happening on the front pages. The younger lawyers are actually telling their partners, I'm not going to keep working for your firm if you represent that guy. I just say it's a big problem for the legal profession because I do believe everyone has the right to a lawyer. And this can go too far the other way, where uh, lawyers are saying, I'm not representing that bad guy. Well, bad guys deserve representation too. Before we let you go, is there anything you'd like to add on the topic? I think it's important, while everybody has to walk through these landmines that I've planted about what's okay to do and what's not okay, I just want to say negotiating itself is really important. I believe that negotiating is a moral and ethical practice. Human beings couldn't get anything done unless they were able to negotiate and make deals with other people. Whether we're aggressive and zealous and nasty to each other or nice and forthcoming and sharing information, we wouldn't pass legislation. We couldn't live with our neighbors. We couldn't parent our children or take care of our parents. We couldn't do any of those things if we didn't negotiate. And so it's a, it's a tough practice. It's not as regulated as lots of other things. But in my opinion, not only lawyers, but everybody needs to know how to negotiate, how to negotiate effectively to solve problems, and also to know how to deal with the bullies of the world, to not be intimidated by them, and to keep one's own compass about what it is that one wants to accomplish, um, and to realize we do need to work with other people. That means listening to them and compromising when it's appropriate. Professor Carrie Menkel Meadow, thank you for your time, and thank you for that reminder to the lawyers out there that they're engaged in a noble pursuit. Thanks, Joel. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for watching Talks on Law. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.